Today is the 23rd of August, 2014, and this is episode 138. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, highly experimental, and we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're digging in. Lavuz is a project built around the idea of proof of movement or proof of transportation. Using decentralized technologies, Matan and Itay tell me about their upcoming rideshare app that'll take the profit out of driving, lessen traffic, and take cars off the road while improving one's ability to get around. But first, I'm joined by Stephanie and Matt Elias to talk about Precedent Coin, a crypto answer to the legal problem. Enjoy the show. My name is Adam B. Levine, and I'm here along with Stephanie Murphy, one of the other hosts here at LTB. Hi. Today at Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Matt Elias. He's here to tell us about his project, Precedent Coin. Matt, how you doing? Doing pretty well, Adam. How are you? Pretty good. So Precedent Coin, you know, we've just been talking about the legal situation and the stuff that's going on in New York. It seems like this might be surprisingly applicable given that conversation. Can you give us kind of the the 10,000 foot view of Precedent Coin and what the goal is? Sure. Precedent Coin lays the groundwork or the foundation for what I believe to be a polycentric legal order, right? So that's where no one is imposing any type of law on you. You're voluntarily deciding what laws you want to abide by, who's kind of adjudicating those disputes and and those laws, and then who's enforcing the outcome of those disputes. Those are kind of like the three pillars of what would make up a decentralized legal system, right? Is Precedent Coin itself a decentralized legal system? Tell me, what is the type of underlying structure you're envisioning here? Is this uh, altcoin? Does it have a blockchain at all? Or is it more of a protocol? It's more of a protocol, and it would, I believe, be built on top of um, one of these meta protocol layers like Counterparty or MasterCoin. Essentially, the token itself solves the public goods problem of publishing and disseminating precedence, right? Right now, producers of precedence, those being like judges or arbitrators, and even parties are involved in producing um, precedence and, and decisions, they're not fairly compensated for those precedents and how those decisions are utilized by people in future. We think that there's serious and, and real value there to be tapped into in um, a, a series of new types of tokens. So this is a token that's built on top of something like Bitcoin. So it's actually a token. It's a non-mined coin. I'm imagining that you're setting up an incentive system where people publish certain things through maybe like a proof of existence type thing. Can you tell me how this actually would work in practice? Sure. So what we're, what we're actually incentivizing is the publication of the outcome of disputes between two people. When two people have a dispute, they bring it to a neutral third party to have some type of adjudication or arbitration take place. Then we subject what took place there to what we call a witnessing event where a randomly selected group of people look at that dispute and say, okay, was this a justiciable dispute? Was this an actual case or controversy between two people with knowledge of the dispute, right? And if in fact it was, the results were published in a certain way, then we reward both the arbitrator and the parties who took part in that dispute. In, in addition to giving precedent coins for just the publication, for every precedent that's actually produced per the protocol, we're going to create a precedent asset. When that precedent asset is utilized again in the future, we're going to require that a certain amount of the precedent asset be burned by another, like another arbitrator in another dispute. And that's going to further reward the arbitrator and the parties who are responsible for its creation. What does it accomplish? I have a couple of questions here. This is actually quite interesting. Um, First off, is this specifically the U.S. legal system or does this apply to any legal system or does it apply to arbitrary rule sets that are outside of existing state legal systems and everything below? This can apply to anything. Anything can be considered law in our system. Any, anyone can take on like any of these roles. Anyone can be a party. Anyone can be an arbitrator and anyone can be a witness. And furthermore, anyone can sort of fork the protocol and apply whatever standards that they want um, for the for the creation of these tokens. Right. So it's it's a, it's 
truly polycentric and decentralized in that sense. Um, there's no kind of starting point. You can literally create your own law. You can import existing law. That's what contracts between two people is, right? Is it's, it's an agreement and it's this closed universe of things that they're willing to consider and they're, they're willing to be bound by. So I was thinking when we first started talking about this, that this was a precedent incentivization scheme applied to the existing legal system to get people to publish precedent. And that's why you've created a standardized format, because since you have all of these different types of interactions and different types of contractual obligations, relationships, etc., you need to have a standardized format that everything can then be presented in because otherwise you're comparing apples against something else. Is there's, that right? There's no reason that this can't be kind of applied to like existing legal systems, right? And I'm actually borrowing a lot of sort of ideas from existing legal systems on particularly that of justiciability, right? And that, that's the criteria that the witnesses are sort of going to be applying. And, and that entails this idea of sort of standing, right? This has to have been an actual case or controversy between two people who've had a dispute. That's important because those two people have the most granular and specific knowledge as to the facts and circumstances surrounding that dispute, right? Yes, this could be applied to an existing legal system, but my point is is that that's a smaller state than really what the broad project is. The broad project seems like it should actually be tying different legal systems together almost, simply because it's providing a common place where all of the, the case law and all of the history essentially is going to eventually wind up if you're successful. Absolutely, and we want to make sort of all of these records of every dispute available to anyone who wants to utilize them. And then if they're going to be incentivized by our protocol and by our system, they need to follow this simple set of rules, right? They need to publish the outcomes of these disputes in, in a particular way. So let's assume for a second that, that I have a contract that I have no idea how to write, that I don't necessarily know what type of contract I want, but I know the specifics of the circumstance that I'm in. Would I be able to go to Precedent Coin's website and look through all of the precedent that's been listed there and search it? How does someone who's not creating a precedent and getting paid coins, how do they interact with this system? The the hope is and the idea is that hope at some point there will be so many decisions and opinions and precedents published that parties to contracts will go and be able to select certain terms from these already decided things and include them into their contracts and then agree with arbitrators and say, okay, arbitrator, I want you to decide this case like you decided this other one. And then if you're able to agree with the other party to the contract that in the event of a dispute, that's how that arbitrator is going to decide the dispute. That's sort of how I see that working out. I think arbitrators will offer law literally to consumers and you'll be able to pick and choose very specific clauses and parts of contracts. You know, we're doing something that's actually kind of similar with our LTB coin platform. What we're doing with the new system is enabling people to if you like write an article, you can request an editor and offer them like a share of the LTB coin rewards that you would earn if it's successfully published. People can essentially make peer to peer deals with each other. And so, of course, coming along with that is arbitration. So actually, we're looking at doing almost exactly this, where members who have a lot of reputation then can opt in to be essentially arbitrators and people can request them specifically. And what I'm really interested in here is how the interaction works. How does this get monetized? Right. I see the various parts and I see that I could use this then to to create a sort of templated agreement or look for arbiters who might represent things in a way that's consistent with my internal logic and things like that. I mean, it's all voluntary and I like all of that stuff. So where does the money come from? If I create a precedent and then you give me one of these assets that you're talking about, as well as some of the precedent coin, what can I do with that and why does that get more valuable? There are two kind of parts to that question, and I'll address precedent coins themselves first, then I'll move to assets after that. So precedent coins are valuable because they represent a specific process that took place to ensure that a given decision was in fact bona fide and justiciable. It was in fact a dispute between two people and it was published in a particular way that is publicly accessible for next to zero cost. When we begin to publish a body of kind of polycentric law in that manner, these precedent coins begin to take on value as they represent kind of that entire body of the results of disputes that is now stored in the cloud for anyone to use in future agreements. As to the precedent assets, those have value because they represent the utility of a given outcome of a dispute. How, how valuable is this precedent going to be in the future? Will this precedent be utilized in uh, in other disputes? And, and when it is utilized, what we require in the protocol is that you burn 
some amount of the precedent asset that will be cited. Now you're an arbitrator making a new decision and you want to cite a prior decision. In order to do that, to do that within the confines and with, within the rules of the protocol, you have to burn some amount of this asset. And that creates a demand for these assets and incentivizes the creation of new, more specific, more useful precedents. So that's kind of the incentive structure that we've set up. Is, uh, did I describe that? Is, is that coming across clearly? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Matt, I have some questions sure. for you. This is going to be in, in a meta protocol like counterparty or master coin. I'm just wondering, like, from a technical perspective, the outcome of disputes seems like it could be potentially quite a bit of data, like maybe more than the amount that could be embedded in the Bitcoin blockchain in a few bytes. How does the data get actually recorded? Well, we're storing several different pieces of data here. I think what your question kind of pertains to is storing like opinions and decisions, right? So opinions come in and are sort of ev evaluated by this group of witnesses to determine whether or not it was an actual dispute. So we, we need to store the opinion somewhere and kind of distribute that to these witnesses who will be voting on it. Then once they've voted on it and they've determined, yes, this is bona fide, this was a justiciable dispute, it becomes a decision and we need to store those more permanently, right? We're, we're open to suggestions on this. We're looking at MadeSafe, we're looking at StoreJ, but you're probably right that um, those two things, at least, are items that cannot probably be stored in the Bitcoin blockchain. It might be stored in a different blockchain or in a different medium, but linked to through the Bitcoin blockchain? Correct. I mean, we can store pretty simple like URLs right now with counterparty assets and refer to other information in other places. So, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. That makes sense. But... URLs can change, obviously, right? Like a web page can be edited. How is it basically timestamped and shown that this is the version that occurred on July 18th at 1.20 p.m. and it hasn't changed on into the future? Yeah, that's a very important point. Um, and I think these um, proof of existence type document timestamping services where you can actually submit a hash of the document to the Bitcoin blockchain will be used for that. Two specific services are proof of existence and uh, crypto stamp both do those for relatively inexpensively. So I think that can be incorporated into our protocol and, and make it work that way. It's cool that there are different options, you know, that you wouldn't just be relying on like one external service to validate timestamping documents and things like that. There are different options and people could do it different ways depending on how they wanted to do it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately like things like the timestamping issue are going to be like a cost sort of matter where just whoever can do it for the lowest cost is going to win out for our protocol. We want to bring down the cost as much as possible and make the incentives as uh, kind of alluring and, and we want to incentivize this activity as much as possible. So yeah. Maybe I missed this before, but disputes are going to occur in all different scenarios, right? Like perhaps there are going to be a dispute between two startup companies over some intellectual property trademark in the United States, and they both agree that we are operating within the U.S. legal system. Perhaps there's going to be a dispute under in Brunei where they're opera law and that both parties are, are agreeing to that or accept that as, as true. But what about a dispute between two merchants that are like in two different parts of the world and they don't even really agree on on like the terms and conditions or like what legal system they're operating under before they have the dispute. Is there some way to mark what kind of basic assumptions you're operating under or each party to the dispute is operating under when the dispute starts being arbitrated? We are assuming in this that people have come to a meeting of the minds, right, as to the contents of a contract, right? So their contract is contained within the four corners of the document, right? Beyond that, whether or not they choose, you know, to include in the contract, like an arbitration clause saying, okay, in the event of a dispute, we will subject ourselves to the laws of Delaware. We will subject our dispute to the laws of Stephanie Murphy. That can happen I have no laws. I'm an anarchist. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, but even after the fact, you know, if there is a dispute, you can, you can still then have a selection process where they agree kind of after the dispute is already kind of underway who they would like to go ahead and resolve it. So those are kind of the two options there. Do the parties have had to have entered into a contract before they can have the dispute arbitrated and the result published on this blockchain? Or does there not have to be a contract to begin with? Because most disputes, to me, it's 
seems like most disputes, there's no contract beforehand. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, you're just talking about sort of the distinction between contract and tort law, right? Not all contracts have to be written down. Uh, you can't really call them contracts, right? They're torts. Um, and, and those are things that we would like to see enforced in society where, you know, gross negligence and restitution and, th- and things like that um, take place. So th- those can also have, have a place in the system, certainly. How would that work? Uh, let's say um, someone comes and um, scratches uh-huh. my car, let's just say, <laughs> you know, and that's my car is a piece of property that belongs to me and they have damaged my property. And this is someone that I don't know and never had a pre-existing contract with. It sounds like that's more of a tort situation. How would that work? Like paint a picture of how we would resolve that dispute and record it on the blockchain. Well, let me just take like a, a higher level view really quickly of, of what's going on here, right? We need to have what is a concept of natural law, right? What are our rights in that situation where someone has violated the right to your, to your property? That's, well, let's say like permanent damage, like smashes the window or like scratches the paint or something like that. Right. So, so what, what, what the precedent protocol is really trying to do is, is, is it's trying to sharpen and it's trying to refine these lofty ideas of justice and of natural law that we have. And it's getting, it's getting down to ground level and it's saying, okay, what were the facts in this actual dispute that occurred between these two people? There, there's an issue here, right? If I go up to you and I say, give me your car, right? That's very different than me saying, give me your car. I have a right to your car. When parties come to an arbitrator in our system, or really in any legal system, they're required to put forth a claim of right. Why do you have a right to recovery from the other person? And in fact, when you're making a claim like that, you're outsourcing and you're assigning your right to recovery to the arbitrator to decide who has a superior kind of claim here. What rules you're deciding to be bound to should be totally up to you is the principle from which we're approaching this. I mean, whether or not those rules are written down or explicitly agreed to, that's up to you. So it sounds like there's a lot of openness for this to be kind of figured out you're not being very directive about it. You're just saying, here's a place to record what happens and good luck. It's like a framework more than anything else. Yeah. I haven't really touched on this point yet, but today in private arbitration, the incentive is to keep the results private. So what our system does is flips that incentive and says, okay, these results are really useful for future disputes. Let's incentivize their publication, their free use, and use them in the future in that way and exploit that value. A lot of court documents and legal decisions today are locked up behind systems like PACER, and people like Aaron Schwartz fought to get those kind of out into the open, and I think this is a way to sort of tokenize that idea and bring Bitcoin into it, and it, and it, again, it solves these two problems of choice of law and, and choice of adjudicator with Bitcoin. Explain to me what is the incentive to keep out bad precedents? What is the incentive for quality in terms of the precedents and, and usefulness? We've thought a lot about this idea and the term, you know, a bad precedent is, is a normative one, right? Who determines what yes. is bad uh, in this particular situation? What we're saying is we're just starting from the very base level and we're saying, was this in fact a genuine dispute? A a case or controversy between two people. Are these two people, in fact, the people who who had the dispute? In law, that's referred to as a concept of standing, or we've brought it out sort of to this idea of justiciability. In common law systems, more generally, you need to have then a a sort of fact-finding effort. Did the arbitrator or the adjudicator utilize tools like subpoenas or depositions to fully flush out all the facts of the case? So things like that are, are going to dictate whether or not a, a precedent is bad or good or, or uh, the language we're using is justiciable. And, and we're, you know, employing these, these witnesses to make that determination for us. And we're actually rewarding them for making that determination. So when the witnesses vote on whether or not a dispute was a justiciable one, they get rewarded and paid for that in precedent coin. There are going to be conflicting precedents, it sounds like, on this blockchain. So is that just going to sort itself out based on which precedents people find useful will be kind of upvoted in that way and rewarded or they'll become more valuable? Would it be Um, all of them? It sort of feels like it might be all of them. (laughs) 
all of them would be conflicting or all of them would be useful? Well, no, all of them would be conflicting and useful because different people <laughs> have different needs and different perspectives. And so it seems like it would be more about reputation almost where you look at the precedent and then you look at who did it and you see if they're available because you want a result that was similar to the one they gave the last time they were faced. Correct. With. I think Adam's description of it is a little more accurate. But again, We've created the system now where reputation is going to be of the utmost importance. We've invented this way of allowing arbitrators to imbue new precedents with authority, right? So you can sort of link these precedents together and refer to older precedents, and that may make uh, you know certain ones more valuable than others. Not all precedents were created equal. Certainly, there will be conflicts, and, and not all precedents will agree with one another. There won't sort of be you know this this agreement like that. But that that's great. That allows for this wonderful polycentricity. This allows for wonderful choice of what people would like to be bound by um, in their agreements. Let's jump ahead for a quick second here. Imagine that you're successful. This is launched in two or three years. And in 10 years, it's quite populated and being used by a lot of people. You know, I mean, what does the world look like if we have a contract and we live in the same place? Do we interact any differently? Do we interact differently if we're in different countries? Where does this make a difference? This certainly makes a difference with, with those kind of local arrangements. But I think what happens, honestly, is the, the the entire world becomes very local to you, right? You're able to make very fluid, dynamic agreements with very flexible terms with literally anyone in the world. And you can have sort of the, the, the comfort in knowing that this was carried out in a, in a particular way. This this precedent was subject to to a certain set of rules and, and was uh, and and carries that authority as a result to make contracting and law much more trustworthy and hopefully lucrative for the people who are involved and responsible for creating these precedents. We see it as a large opportunity for people to take part and be rewarded for creating these things. My only other question that I had was basically, does it create an overarching system? But it really doesn't sound like it does. It sounds like it's actually polycentric, like you described it, where people can kind of pick what they like out of that or what applies to them. And it's really just a place to record all these different precedents and incentivize the ones that are useful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really procedural in that sense. It's a procedural agreement that, yes, these precedents were created in this agreed upon way, and they all have this commonality, right? These common attributes. This episode is brought to you by CryptoKit and listeners like yourself. I'm unplugged from the net, and while sponsors have been great, it didn't happen for this trip. So if you enjoyed this episode, check out the show notes or head over to letstalkbitcoin.com for the correct addresses to send us a tip in either Bitcoin or LTB coin. Oh, and today's magic word is move. M-O-V-E, move. You've got until the 26th of August to get to letstalkbitcoin.com and enter the magic word for your share of the listener rewards. And now... Back to the show. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Matan and Shay, two members of the team behind the Lazuz project. Gentlemen, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. So, Lazuz, what, what language is that? What does it mean? Well, uh, Lazuz is in Hebrew, it means uh, to move in Hebrew. And Zuz, the part, the part Zuz in the word means move, the command move. And another meaning it has is that the uh, ancient token, it's a Hebrew word also for an ancient token. Hmm. And the meaning of Zuz move for that token was derived because it was understood the token that, that healthy economy should be established by tokens that move. So, so tell me about the Luzuz project from a high level overview. What are you attempting to do here? I think that uh, we are attempting uh, to bootstrap uh, decentralized transportation. By saying bootstrapping uh, decentralized transportation, we mean you could move from place to place without having to wait without your own car, using other uh, vehicles, and without waiting too long for this. That's why we're starting with bootstrapping and the ride sharing will be the next phase we will deal with. Oh, the idea is to have a, a sort of a collaborative transportation web or transportation network 
where you can really use the already existing infrastructure that is out there, all the cars that are out there and maybe other uh, resources, maybe taxis or vans or, or buses or public transportation, and just use the already existing transportation and synchronize it wisely in order to allow uh, users get from any place to any other places easily, cheaply. So what you've described sounds a lot to me like Uber or some other uh, one of the other types of ride-sharing programs out there. Um, how is your project different from Uber or is it different from Uber? It's very much different from Uber. I mean, Uber is, is well, it's more like a taxi uh, a company because eventually the fare that is uh, used between the rider and the driver is more than the cost of driving and people actually use that as, as a second job. And also it's, it's organized uh, by a company, by a centralized company. I, we, we look uh, completely different. We think about a, a collaborative effort where uh, different people can use, uh, can share together their rides uh, with a fair fare such that only cover the costs. So maybe today I'm using your uh, car and tomorrow you're using mine. It's a completely different economy. It's a share, share economy. You don't do this because you want to make money. When I've uh, recently been using services like Uber or Lyft, a lot of times I'm talking with you know normal people who are like, yeah, you know, I actually don't have a job anymore. I'm just doing you know this driving around the city uh, instead. So that's not a situation that you think Lazuz will be used for, right? Right. So yeah. can, they, they yeah, can, can not, you talk they, about that decision? It's derived out of what we have uh, noticed is that there is abundance in uh, traffic that this abundance is abundance of free seats. And uh, what we are trying to do is harvest the abundance of uh, free seats and, by the way, loosen up the traffic jams and make everything move better by just synchronizing the already existing infrastructure of people driving from place to place. So you don't want people to say, oh, well, this is a good system. I could make money driving, so therefore I will drive other people when I don't actually have a place to go. This is really more intended right. for, like, I'm already going someplace and I can help somebody out and, you know, at a later point, someone will help me out. Right, exactly. I think, I think that it's a threefold uh, decision. So one decision is simply because uh, if you make the fare much lower then you allow for a much wider spectrum of audience or of users to use it. So you, you can, you, it can become much uh, uh, more effective. That's, one, that's the simplest uh, reason. A second reason is that if you have an application that allows you just uh, riding with your cars around and basically being a taxi, then you're not reducing the number of cars on the road. You're just increasing it. And the, the idea here is to reduce the number of cars on the road. A third, more deeper reason is that it's, it's a well-known psychological experiment that if you uh, give a hard measure benefit or reward for someone for doing a good action, eventually you are killing the soft measure incentive or the, you know, the, the inner incentive of him to do the same action. So in some sense, by, by, by allowing, making money out of that, you, you, in some sense you are killing the sharing economy and the good intentions of people. So the idea here is to really to, to, to direct toward the good intention of people and by that building a real collaborative economy. The primary use case that I think we're talking about here are people who want rides and people who are already going someplace and wouldn't mind having a passenger. So can you talk about this? You know, I, I'm a user, uh, you know, I'm going, you know, a town over. Uh, how, how does this work? What is my experience like? I mean, you can just open the app and, and tell where you want to get and then uh, uh, assuming that there is a critical mass of users in the network, then right after, maybe a couple of minutes later on, uh, the next car is, uh, drop, is just driving by and picking you up. And maybe you want to get to, from A to B, but this car just uh, is it's on, 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 it, on its way, but not from A to B, let's say from A to C. And then you, you get down uh, at C, but then another car takes you from C to B. So, so that's actually uh, very different than something like Uber. You're actually talking about, this is almost like uh, onion routing, like the, the Tor network applied to, um, to right. physical routing. So, uh, if I'm going a, a distance, then I might actually travel in three or four cars and get dropped off someplace and then picked up by right. another car. So, this would, so the system itself, the app, would be uh, determining this, or would this be people opting in? Or? Right, so the system will ideally uh, determine that for you. Of course, given some uh, input that you, you put in, like if you want to get specific uh, set of people, for example, 
know, the system will analyze profiles of users. For example, you can say, for my security, I only want to go with someone who has a common friends with me on uh, Facebook, for example, hmm. or etc. So you can, you can eliminate the spectrum of people you want to get the uh, ride with. And also women can ask to drive only with the women driver. If they feel safer. But given up to some uh, input that you will give, uh, eventually the system will accommodate the, the best route for you. And of course, each time when uh, it uh, offers you a car, it will firstly tell both the driver and the rider, it will tell that you have a match and it would give you some indication about the profile of the other then you can decide if you want to take it or not and maybe i should just add something that on this stage that we are on there won't be ride sharing option in the app the first stage is the bootstrapping of the community because we want to start the ride sharing feature only after you won't have to wait more than five minutes all over the way That seems fairly ambitious. Uh, what, how, how can you bootstrap? And it, this definitely seems like a right. chicken egg, especially if you're not trying to have people do this as a career or anything like that, where they, they really feel like this is a good venue to profit relative to other opportunities. So how do you bootstrap a network like this? Right. So, so actually, this is the biggest challenge in this program. I mean, there are, there are already uh, several uh, real-time ride-sharing uh, companies out there, and none of them have enough users for that. Because as, as long as you don't have enough users, the system doesn't flow. But if the system doesn't flow, users do not use it. So as you said, it's a chicken-egg problem. So the idea is, is really, uh, maybe let me give you an analogy, a, re a real analogy. Uh, it's, a, it's a well-known thing that in the, in night, nightclubs have the same problem. Let's say the nightclub uh, opens at uh, 10 p.m. And then you go to the nightclub and you find yourself the only person in the club. So clearly you will uh, leave the club and uh, go to the next club. But then each time uh, someone is coming in, he's the first pe person in the club. So the way to deal with that is to actually open the club at 10 p.m., but then when the people come to the club, they tell them uh, the club is not yet open and you should stand in the line. Uh, we will open in 20 minutes. While you're standing in the line, uh, you know, we, can, we can give you some drinks, etc. And then at, at 10.30... Uh, after there is a long uh, line accumulated in front of the doors, then uh, at once all the crowd is entering and enjoying the club. So the, th the same thing is uh, uh, we build here. So we, in, within a few weeks, we release an app. This app that doesn't do right share, so you, you won't get disappointed. So the only thing you can do, you can drive with it open. And while you're, you're driving it open, you, on one hand, you, you're, you're declaring I'm a potential user and sending your GPS location. Uh, and at the same time, Uh, you, you are mining the, the token of transportation, the ZUS, and by that gaining value uh, for later stages. Only once that we, we reach the critical mass of users, only then at once we release the ride-sharing option, then everyone can start co collaboratively drive together at once. So this is sort of like a proof of concept for the network itself, just for like the adoption. You, you have the ability to prove. So that's, that's really interesting that you'd rather offer less functionality than functionality that won't be disappointing. Exactly. That's, that's the idea. Not, 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 to, not to offer something that doesn't work. Just offer what, what we have working. So Already. tell me about the token. Um, you know, so you said that, uh, that when people are driving, you mentioned GPS. Um, you know, I've, uh, your, your concept is proof of transportation or proof of delivery. Can you talk to me about what's going on in the background here? How are people actually mining this? I mean, you're sending your GPS location, and we, we want to be sure that this, it's, it's authentic, real GPS Uh, data that you are sending. So you can, you can, if you want, you can divide it to three categories. You can say, I want to prove that you are a human being. Uh, more accurately, I want to prove that you are uh, uh, at the location that you are saying you are. And more accurately, I want to prove that you are moving, as you say that you are moving. So we, we call it proof of human being or proof of location or proof of movement. And each of these categories, we have heuristics that analyze the data that you are sending and really authenticating that you are what doing what you say you are doing. And if, if, your, if your data stand in all the criteria that, you, that we put, then uh, the mining algorithm uh, is working. So in that sense, it's a proof, yeah, proof of movement or proof of location. So for example, uh, for proof of human being, so uh, that, that's, even before you're driving, we just want to know that as a user, you are indeed a user, not a bot. So, I mean, 
we're not that we are less worried that you know one person will uh, write one program that will uh, cheat the system that's you know that's fine but we are worried that one person will write millions of programs or you no know, program that they make millions of millions of users uh, to mine tokens and by that dilute dilute the, the economical system so firstly we want to, to know if you are a bot or a human so for example one way to do that is to analyze the graph of links between you among users so any two users that download the app the application look at their uh, list contact list and if let's say uh, uh, Bob and Alice uh, download the app So if Bob has Alice's number in his contact list and Alice has Bob's number in her contact list, so we know that both of them know each other and then we mark it as a link. So a bot, for example, can, can never have such a link. Maybe a bot can somehow fakely have some other's phone number, but they won't have his phone number, his fake phone number. By analyzing the graph of links, we are able uh, pretty uh, clearly diagnosing and uh, see uh, clouds of bots. Because they have very different pattern in terms of links between people, it doesn't look like a real, real network, and they are very much separated from the from the rest of the community. If we're talking about a, a, a more about proof of location, so we call it the environmental factor. So, for example, uh, we have a lot of users. By the way, another use of this co- collaborative platform is that uh, you can imagine that now we have millions of users all the, all all over the place and in real time. So, we can, in some sense, we can map the data in uh, everywhere. So for example, like just to give you an example, and we also can use it for provocations. For example, let's say that we ask uh, the application to tell us that the, the smartphone to tell us the barometric pressure at the, at the point that uh, someone is standing. So this firstly can be used as, as a map, as mapping the, the barometric pressure all over the world. But secondly, we, if, if uh, someone is telling me uh, that and that about the result or several people in the same place telling that, then we know that if you're already also passing there, you should, you should be telling the same, uh, the same answer. And if you're telling the different answer, we know that you are cheating. So the community probe itself if you are really there or not. I like all of your custom metrics and I really like this I you know again I, I really have been pushing for um, more uh, non-computational ways to do mining and again it seems like this is more of all, almost like a sensor-based method of uh, of mining verification but let me ask right. you this um, is this Bitcoin based is it based on a blockchain uh, what what exactly you know is where where does this fit compared to other coins out there is it built on top of something what's that background look like right now it's a Bitcoin based because uh, it uh, sits on 2.0 uh, protocols of counterparty and mastercoin that so you're issuing a to custom re- token on both counterparty and mastercoin for this project right yeah We, to be a beneficial uh, way to make it seamless for the user and let uh, users that uh, have some perforation choose to And the others just uh, divide because there is some risk in 2.0 uh, protocol or bugs so we don't know what there are three ways it, it can help it's also uh, lowering the risk and also giving the users more opportunity to choose from and uh, the third one is uh, making an infrastructure that will make us ready for the The next stage, if Ethereum will uh, deliver what they say, we will have already the infrastructure to implement the tokens on Ethereum. So what you're building is a layer on top of, of something. And right now that layer is counterparty of MasterCoin, but the, you're kind of viewing this as, as a temporary thing and that your priority is really using the best solution for your need, right? For me, it's a little bit more than that. I mean, each of us, each of us find a different interest in that. The interesting story about that is that we started this project uh, way before we were aware the 2.0 protocols and, and, and decentralized application. And at some point we just realized that uh, that's what we need. And we got to this space actually through MasterCoin. So we had a long-term relation, a very good relationship with them. And then that was the natural thing to start with, to issue the tokens on MasterCoin. But when we start just started writing the protocol, we found out that the, the exact feature that we needed Uh, already did not exist on mastercoin but already existed on counterparty so so the second thing to check it w- w- was uh, with counterparty and eventually uh, fronted by the option to work with both of them as mastercoin could develop all the features that we needed I personally thought that it would be really uh, interesting to kind of bring the message 
of non-competition and of collaboration because this is really our message. I thought it's really, really interesting to start, try to uh, build a protocol that actually incorporates both MasterCoin and Counterparty. And of course, yeah, eventually we think of uh, having uh, something which is completely universal. And if there is it will be another third platform, it will definitely also like to issue on that platform. And, and, and the longest, like the further, further uh, vision that we have is to become fully decentralized. So in that sense, Ethereum might uh, support that, being able to issue uh, uh, contracts of which you don't need to use uh, as any private key. So in that sense, uh, that may be a longer vision. The metrics that you're collecting all basically rely on personal information, and it also relies on being able to verify that personal information. So are there any privacy concerns about GPS? Are there usernames associated? And, and is this done? Is this something where your company is being trusted with a lot of this information? I mean, do users have to trust you? Or is this, I mean, like, or explain, explain to me how this works, and I'm not exposing exactly where I go every time I'm running this app to your company. Right now, you are exposing this data to our server, but we are uh, working toward decentralization in third stage. Right now, the data is being collected on our servers, and one of the first aims at the first quarter that we are uh, doing the public sale for is closing the proof of location area. And while doing so, we would have to have a big chunk of data to do verification and analyzing. The data is without username. It's uh, just having the public key as an identifier because this is what is being collected. But right now, it's on our side. It's on the server. So basically, we can collect this data, but... This is like a kind of experiment and using the application right now will be helping us develop this proof of location for the next stage that we can say that all this information is just out there. Right now, uh, the data is uh, exposed to us, but as I said, is is uh, is without uh, any of your profile data. But uh, the idea eventually is go to indeed full decentralization. And full decentralization also means that uh, we won't be holding any servers. So also the server will be held by the people, just like miners uh, of Bitcoin. And then we plan to secure the data cryptographically in a way that it will not be exposable. It will be transparent, but the private data won't be exposable for uh, other users. So this technology seems like it could be used for a lot more than ride sharing. Um, can you can you talk about any other use cases that you guys are interested in, or think that even if you're not the ones developing them, that there are interesting uses of this technology that will be developed in the future by somebody? Right. So maybe firstly we should say that the the, the longer vision is really having a like a huge collaboratory transportation web, which is completely open source. And we plan to have standard communication protocols, all these uh, open APIs, to which any third party could be uh, integrating with. So you can imagine uh, different ride-sharing apps uh, collaborating. You can imagine carpools apps collaborating, uh, navigation apps. You can also imagine having a decentralized delivery system uh, on top of the same network. You can uh, use it for post services, for boxes, uh, shipping of goods. You can even imagine that, uh, you know, the trucks every day are driving one way full and one way empty. Maybe you can just uh, put your uh, stuff in the truck and move your apart- apartment almost for, for, cheaper, for a very cheap rate. And so the difference uh, between this and what's possible now is that, you know, we have, there are global delivery networks, you know, both by, run by governments and, you know, run by private companies like uh, FedEx. But at the same time, these are pr- proprietary networks. And essentially the value proposition of what you're offering at its core is that just like Bitcoin, the network you're talking about is fundamentally neutral and, it, you know, anybody can use it for, for its intended uses, basically, just based on following the rules as opposed to needing to go through some kind of crazy vetting process. Right. Right, exactly. That's the, the main, that's the main difference. But but it you know it also brings a lot more efficiency to the network. No, it's not only a matter of control. It's also it also brings much much more efficiency. You will be able to reduce traffic and cars on the road by a huge factor. Tell I mean, me where half. is this project now? I mean, it sounds like you guys have been working on it for a while now. Um, so you know what what's the stage it's at now? And if people are interested in getting involved or helping, you know, how can they do that? Right. So we, we are working on that for uh, ten months now. It's almost uh, ready for getting public. We are planning to release uh, in a couple of weeks 
an alpha version of the app where people can start using it and mine uh, Zeus tokens uh, on the go and start building the network, building the web. All the system, the mining system over 2.0 protocol is ready and done and the app is ready. We are, we are launching a website so people can already check uh, lazoos.org, L-A-Z-O-O-Z.org. Uh, it's, it's under construction but there's already, already something there. Basically, the whole project is open. I mean, uh, we any, anyone that wants to join the project and, and contribute is is is, uh, is is very welcome. And for we haven't said that, but uh, we ourselves for all this time are just mining in some sense mining zoos. We, we are not uh, we are not having any fund, and we are all working as volunteers. And for any contribution to the project, the, the whole community uh, evaluates your contribution and decides for a, for a bounty for this contribution. So one way to, to, to join the effort is, is, is helping development. Another way to join the effort is simply uh, downloading the app and spreading among people. And of course, a third uh, option to contribute to this effort will be open in, uh, within a month, with which you, can, uh, you could be able just to buy those tokens directly from the system and by that uh, helping uh, to promote the uh, development. So can you tell me a little bit about that crowdfunding event? I mean, is that what you're doing? Is this a crowd sale? We, we are still a bit like finalizing the last details of all of this in the next months or so, or maybe two months. And we plan to have then a crowd sale. We actually have a, a quite different crowd sale than the standard ones. Um, the idea that we have, we, have, we are planning on a slightly different economy. Usually the standard economy is that... Uh, if you have a decentralized app, you are uh, building your own tokens, then you're c- releasing a finite number of them, or perhaps in the case of Bitcoin, it's not a, it's a, it's, you're releasing it like gradually, but eventually you are controlling the number of tokens in the system, and by the demand and supply, uh, the, the value of the token is, is changing. So it's rising if the, if the project is successful, and it's, it's going down if the project is not successful. We're trying to build something quite different, so we are imagining an economy where the tokens, the tokens' value are actually fixed, actually pegged to a real value in the world. They are not depending on any economy. So in our case, we thought that the most reasonable thing to do is to peg the value of Zoo's token to the cost of driving, uh, of let's say, one kilometer of drive. So that's the idea. It's a little bit technical, but for that we decided, we, we found a, a, I mean, a way to peg, to peg the value by basically allowing, not controlling the number of tokens in the, in the circulation. Let's say, for example, that we want to peg the value of a Zeus token to one uh, US dollars, for example. So the full pegging is very uh, simple to, to make. If you're allowing a user to buy from you uh, one Zeus token for one US dollar, and also uh, to sell to you a Zeus token for one US dollar, then you, you simply peg the value of, uh, of Zeus to, to one dollar, to $1, right? Right. This, is, this is called market, market making or, or central bank, for example. That's the way to peg it. But then if you do that, you are losing the bootstrap mechanism. You are losing the, the, the added value for early contributors. If the token is fully pegged, then there is no difference if you contribute early or late. So that's one problem. And, and another problem is that as long as you only issue tokens uh, with respect to purchase, so there is no problem because you always have the, the money to pay it back when, uh, when the user uh, right. wants to buy back, like to sell back his uh, Zeus token. But if you also at the same time issue Zeus tokens for development or for users, in total you have more uh, Zeus token in the circulation than money to back it up in your, in your fund. The way to solve the, both of these problems is to open a gap between, between your selling rate and buying rate. This is what's called market making. And by opening this, this gap, we're also able to contribute to early contributors uh, more value. And the way this is done is that if, let's say that now selling and buying margins are $1.5 and $0.5. So if you're sending bit, Bitcoin with a value of $1.5 to our address, we'll issue a new token, a new Zeus token, and send it back to you. And if you will send to our address a 0.5 Zeus token, we will burn it out of circulation and send you back $0.5, of course, in Bitcoin. So you have a flexible uh, money supply. Right. So firstly, it's, uh, we always have enough money to pay it back because that's, that's what defines our lower margin. So our lower margin is defined to be the value that we have in the fund over the number of Zeus tokens so that we, we don't have a run in the bank, of the bank, so to say. So we all, always have enough, uh, enough uh, money to cash it out for everyone. And, but the interesting thing is that if you're sending $1.5 uh, 
and we are sending back one Zeus token, we actually issue 1.5 Zeus token because we want to peg it one to one. But then the rest of it, the 0.5, we divide among all users, all Zeus uh, holders with respect to their stakes. So by that, it's, it's some sort of dividend mechanism. And, and that's what uh, induces a greater value for early contributors. That's a very so interesting approach. Uh, yeah, that's, that sounds very interesting. I'm, you know, the idea of a flexible money supply as a way to combat both volatility and make it so something can essentially be redeemable. So if the market goes without, you know, like a, you go a, a bidless market or something, you still can essentially trade against the platform. That's essentially what you're, what you're providing here, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really fascinating line. I've been thinking about that line of development for quite some time now, and it's really great to see these, these, these things finally starting to happen. You're saying in a few weeks, do you have like, a, are we looking the month of September, or the month of October? Yeah, right. in September, we are uh, checking uh, the London conference as a place to, to start, but we are not sure. We don't have a boost there. We are uh, looking the options. We're actually supposed to actually start a crowdfund already uh, last week uh, in the conference in Tel Aviv, inside Bitcoin Tel Aviv, uh, which was canceled. So we decided to maybe look up for a next uh, conference. So we're not sure yet, but yeah, we have some candidates. But, but probably, uh, probably on September somewhere, uh, we launch everything. I mean, the app will be launched already uh, in a few weeks, in a couple of weeks. But, uh, so, but the crowd sale itself will probably uh, begin somewhere in September. Lazoos.org, uh, L-A-Z-O-O-Z.org, if you want to learn more or get involved. Thanks, guys, for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Ite, Matan, Matt, Stephanie, and Adam. This episode was edited by Denise Levine and Adam Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. The LTB platform is now open source under the name Tokenly. A link to the forum thread introducing is in the show notes, and if you'd like to contribute to our PHP-based project, you can now earn 10,000 LTB coin for every commit that's accepted into the main branch. Thanks for listening.